Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Sea Thing" by Frank Belknap Long Jr. Uh, I usually leave off the junior. Um, first published in Weird Tales, December 1925. Um, this is a early Weird Tales story. So it's, I think, started in late 23, early 24, and they're sort of getting their sea legs, <laughs> as it were. It, it actually takes some time for them to sort of organize, and once Lovecraft comes into the picture, which he does almost right away, uh, they start changing the magazine and it becomes more, more what it will eventually morph into. But this, I think, fits fairly well into later uh, Weird Tales, but it also is not perfectly aligned. And uh, we are a little bit hesitant to do this one because it's quite long. Um, it's almost half hour to read. But um, I think there's some interesting stuff going on, and I, I'm eager to talk to you about it. I'm eager to hear you. <laughs> okay. This is not uh, my cup of brine. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> So uh, here's how I understand the story. Um, it's a uh, it's in the form of a captain's log. It's uh, as far as I can tell, contemporary to yeah. the uh, to the publication. So it's 1925, but it's a sailing vessel. Now I did a little bit of research, and sailing vessels were still used occasionally, mm -hmm. uh, not just occasionally, when time was not an issue. So no passengers, uh, no precious goods, but large commodities might be shipped by a uh, sailing vessel because uh, although they are slower than steam vessels, which had dominated the market by the mid-20s, um, they were not tied down to support on the land. You didn't have to go into a special port in order to get a carpenter who could fix something that had uh, needed that needed repair. Mm -hmm. um, this is the these are the last days of commercial sailing vessels. This is the log of a captain. It begins when they are caught in a great calm. Um, so the the ship is going nowhere, and the rudder some for some reason is gone, and the crew has been dying they uh, apparently came down with cholera i will remind people who have probably nobody who's listening to us today has ever had the misfortune of encountering cholera but i'll remind you that uh, it it's a terrible dis disease that leads to utter dehydration of the individual the water comes out every place where water should come out and places where it shouldn't come out um and among other things uh that's what kills you it's uh, it's a dehydration yeah. shriveling up yeah death um and it is transmitted through uh infected water as we take up this story the crew is reduced to the crew, captain and crew are reduced to seven Clearly not a lucky number, as we will find out. Uh, they are m mostly starving, and because they're starving, they're having trouble working the bilge pumps to keep the water from level from rising. And what they did call you the well. did you mention they were becalmed? 
in the yes, doldrums. They did. Okay, they I'm lost sorry. The rudder as well. Yes, they're 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 so in they're, dire straits, as it were. Except they're not in straits at all. <laughs> Indeed, um, they are a thousand miles from land to the uh, to captain and his. The log is loquacious in narrative. I don't know why he's writing that way. And indeed, to me, one of the most interesting things is, uh, since he says, it's clear we're going to die and never get anywhere, why am I even writing this? Uh, To which I, as the reader, said, yes, why are you writing this? Uh, His motivation is not clear to me. Anyway, as they get weaker, it gets harder to clear the bilge. But then the bill, but but they do manage to get some food because a flying fish lands on the deck and that gets eaten and pretty soon more flying fish come. So that seems to be taken care of. And then the water stops rising in the well. I don't know why. I have my theory. We can discuss that Mm -hmm. afterwards. What we do know is that someone comes drifting along in a dinghy. And he is introduced to us by the captain as being a wonderful fellow with healing powers and a jolly attitude and so on. Uh, He says his name is Francis de la Vega, and they all decide to call him Veggie. Um, And one can't help but think that maybe he's not exactly an animal life form. Uh, And later we find out that he has green scales. He's a shapeshifter. He doesn't have green scales when he enters the boat. But he does have some healing effects. And everybody is happier and healthier when he's there. And there are more flying fish. And the well water doesn't rise. I'm wondering if the uh, the holes in the boat have been stopped up from the outside. Mm-hmm. What turns out to be the case is that uh, one crew member gets uh, sick and another crew member gets sick and then they get sicker. You know, after being happy with Veggie around for a while... He takes over a cabin, and it smells terribly. Charnel stuff. Oh, horrible, horrible fetter. Um, the guy we see the most getting sick is revealed to have a circular wound on his chest, in the middle of which are a couple of bite marks. And what we realize pretty darn quickly is that uh, something is lampraying him. The captain finds a 17th century book of old miscellaneous stuff, and it tells of a story of some fellow who off the coast, uh, whose name is Francis de la Vega, off the coast of Bilbao, which is in uh, on the north coast of Spain, in the Bay of Biscay, on the Bay of Biscay, um, jumps into the water and is never seen again. But five years later, off the coast of Cadiz, which is almost far enough to get to the Straits of Gibraltar, there is some human being spotted swimming through the waters. And somehow or other, it's implied by the miscellany that's being quoted that that's the same guy. So somehow he's been able to live and turn green scaly and he's a merman or, well, obviously he's more of a mer vampire. <laughs> so the captain and one of the a young crewman set, uh, sleep together so that if anything happens, they'll be uh, armed. Then they have a knife and a gun. And indeed, in comes the shape. They, the shape fastens onto uh, the youngster, so the captain kills the guy. But the guy's already killed the youngster. And then he puts a knife through his heart. 
because that's apparently necessary to kill a vampire and dumps him overboard. Uh, and that's sort of the end of the story. Uh, the last line says, now that the vampire is dead, a breeze, a breeze, the great calm is vo- broken and all hands are busy forward. I thank God that by tonight we shall be he- headed toward Frisco, <laughs> headed toward it because it's going to take them a while to do fashion a makeshift rudder um, so the question that that was, of course is was the calm somehow created by veggie needing to stop some human beings on whom he could feed um, that's to me i gotta be frank here uh sorry not francis de la vega i have to be candid here jesse this is not the kind of story that I, I typically find engaging because when, as I did just before we got together today, I found there was nothing new in it. It just doesn't seem to me to go anywhere. And since I can tell from the very beginning it's just a sea vampire story, um, I, I'm eager to find out um, how it can enrich one. So uh, one, of the, one of the ways I, I think one ought to look at it is it, it's a particular genre, which is it's a horror story designed to creep you out. It's supposed to be creepy. Um, and uh, obviously, I, I was pretty much, when I started reading it the first time, I was pretty much on board with it being a, a vampire story right away. Um, as soon as this De La Vega guy comes on board, I'm like, Okay, there's something going on here. Um, but I got, I got, I got really into the idea that he he was great at telling stories, um, and he tells a story about the Inqui- Spanish Inquisition, and they were so lifelike. Say says the captain, and how much he inspired the crew by it, and and what I also liked about it is that even by though he's great at telling a story, you mean Francis de la Vega? Indeed, you know I mean? yes. Yeah. Okay. And the thing is, is uh, yeah. So you're you're thinking Frank Belknap Long's not so great at it. Um, I agree. Well, it is Frank Bel. No, no. I'm saying that Frank Belknap Long seems to be telling a story. And since the captain's log is narrative, the captain is telling a story. Right. And since the captain quotes something in the miscellany, and the miscellany itself is quoting what seems to have. Uh, been related from centuries before. There's a lot of storytellers in this there are. story. That's why I wanted to make one of the make missing what you meant. One of the missing storytellers is there's a a, a sequence in Dracula that is not ex- made explicit in the novel, um, but we we can infer it, and that's the trip from uh, Transylvania to England and the arrival of the ship. And that is actually sort of what's being recreated here, except it ends with a happy ending here rather than the captain being the last survivor and and uh, the ship crashing on the shores and then a, a giant wolf jumping from the ship and into the moors, and that's Dracula. Here we've got a, a sea vampire thing that seems to go on board ships. It has a story about... Its previous ship, um, which is a famous one apparently, and has been lost, um, and he somehow is the only survivor. Um, they all died because they drank seawater. He says, 
And even the captain is saying, yes, we, we trust him, we believe him. And some of the crew is like, no, no, he's not so good. And he's, no, no, he's great. He's our friend. Um, it's almost like he has these powers of magnetism that Dracula has. He can put you under a spell. But they sort of wax and wane as well because he changes shape. He changes, uh, like he becomes bloated with blood after he drains people, and he sort of becomes evil um, more explicitly than when at first he arrives with his dubious story. So what I liked about this in part was it was a, a making explicit the the inferred story from Dracula. Um, but then I I got really interested with that nested story from a book called The Winter Evening, and I was like, this is interesting. So I I looked it up, and it's uh, this Francis de la Vega guy. He's a historical figure. Um, and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, oh, so he's actually he's actually working a a mon- uh, sort of a mythical monster from. Uh, and I actually tracked down the book. Uh, I'll just read from the um, from the uh, story itself here for a moment. So it starts, I turned the pages of the little book rapidly. It's very convenient he finds a book that uh, can solve all his problems here. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) And laughed at the ridiculous lore that graced its soiled yellow pages. It was a miscellany, bearing the title A Winter Evening, and the incongruity of such a book among among such surroundings amused and delighted me. And then I discovered the following passage, and I had no longer any desire to laugh. And then we find out about this Francis de la Vega in a couple of paragraphs. Um, so I actually found that book. It's called The Winter Evening. Uh, it's Embracing Personal Narrative Incidents of Travel. Um, and the section starts on section 225, called An Ultramariner. And I'll read that for you now. According to Father Feiju, in the month of June 1674, some young men were walking by the seaside in Bilboa when one of them, named Francis de la Vega, of about 15 years of age, suddenly leaped into the sea and disappeared presently. His companions, after waiting some time, and he not returning, made the event public, and sent an account to de la Vega's mother at uh, Legere, uh, very hard to pronounce Spanish name, a small town in the Archbishop of Burgos. At first she discredited his death, but his absence occasioned her fond doubts to vanish, and she mourned him and his untimely loss. About five years afterwards, some fishermen in the environs of Cadiz perceived the figure of a man, sometimes swimming and sometimes plunging under the water. On the next day, they saw the same and mentioned it as a very singular circumstance to several people. They threw their nets, and baiting the swimmer with some pieces of bread, they at length caught the object of their attention which, to their astonishment, they found to be a well-formed man. They put several questions to him in various languages, but he answered none. Then they took him to the convent at St. Francis, where he was exorcised, thinking he might be possessed by some evil spirit. The exorcism was as useless as the questions. At length, after some days, he pronounced the word in legere. It happened that a person belonging to that town was present when he uttered the name as was also the secretary of the Inquisition, who wrote to his correspondence at Legere, relating the particulars and instituting inquiries relative to 
this very extraordinary man. And he received the account of a young man who who had disappeared in the manner before related. Okay, so basically what happens then is we get the Inquisition. He eventually is made to speak, but he can only say three words. Words are pain, vino, and tobacco. <laughs> Bread, wine, and tobacco. And he doesn't know how to apply them. Um, and then um, what's interesting is this um, Father Feiju, he was a skeptic. Um, he was an Enlightenment skeptic, and he wrote, go, went around looking for, supposedly, looking for um, uh, fakes and trying to show them to be false. But this one, he said, was true. <laughs> and so there's a, it, it's kind of like this, this kind of book is like uh, what we would now call an Uncle John's bathroom reader sort of book, right? It's a collection of interesting things from all over the place that are public domain and you can collect together. So I'm pretty sure what happened was Frank Belknap Long took that little section from this book and then said, hmm, there's a story there. How do I make it explicit? Um, and then he turned it into a vampire story. And I thought that was really interesting because it is... I, I love the epistolary uh, format. We're, we're going to do another one of those upcoming. Um, where you... I've read whole epistolary novels where, you know, it's just diary entry dates. It, it, it's a really fun mechanism for telling a story. And here he uses it to tell a creepy story. And some of the language is incredibly creepy, like the way um, the De La Vega creature is standing over them is super creepy. And the way that the, the captain seems to be lying to his crew, but he believes them. And it's almost like he's being forced. And then, you, as you mentioned, the, the flying fish... And the stopping up of the water. Something's going on that's hidden from us. But what it is exactly just leads us sort of... Like, I, I keep thinking about why does his room stink? He doesn't seem to do his eating in there. Maybe it's because it's, it's like the bottom of the sea. Right? That, that's where he lives. He's a lamprey now or something. So there's all sorts of hidden things from us. And it has all these echoes. And yet it's of a literature that isn't normally thought to be very deep, which is, you know, spooky, uh, creepy stories about, like, gruesome stuff, as opposed to philo philosophical stories that use horror to, to bring about realization of uh, truths, like how old the Earth is, or how big the universe is, or how the universe doesn't care about us. This is sort of Lovecraft sort of point of view. This is more like body horror, done as a as a story well um i'm glad that you enjoy it and <laughs> i appreciate it i appreciate it i'm not being ironic i'm, I'm glad because I, I often find that um when i encounter something that can resonate with a a large context that matters to me that thing matters to me more than other things that I encounter, and they're sort of, you know, one-offs. Um, and I, I can understand how, given your own reading taste, that something like this would would really uh, appeal to you. My recollection of Dracula, that is the book, mm -hmm. is that 
we do learn about the voyage yes. that Dracula makes. Uh, it's not hidden from us. We learn that he has to be in his own soil. He uh, loads up a coffin with his own soil. He contracts to have himself unknown. Right? That, that shipped to, uh, to England. Uh, it pulls up at Whitby, and a wolf jumps off mm-hmm. and, and goes off into the, uh, into the countryside. Uh, I think we actually do learn about this. We do, but um, it's indirectly. It's, uh, whereas this, is, it's like day by day, right? Whereas well, there we, we get we it learn from... from John, we learn from Jonathan Harker what business Dracula had to do in order to pull this off. So um, it's true we don't get the daily log on the ship, but that's in part because it's just an easy voyage ship. Whereas here, the voyage is the problem. The voyage gets stopped, we think, by, by Veggie, and then it starts up again when Veggie has the knife driven through his heart. Now, that's kind of nice. I'm wondering whether or not Veggie... I mean, I wanted to call him Veggie because it's de la Vega. You know, mm-hmm. you know how to pronounce the Spanish. But we don't get a lot of color here. Well, there's, we get the there's green, stuff hidden the from green us, for scales, sure. And we get the green eyes. When the kid is being killed, he, you know, he just looks up and goes, green eyes, ugh, ooze, mouth, wet. So to the extent that we get any characterization Visual. I'm not talking about the smell. Um, it's green, mm-hmm. so I can't help but wonder if veggie is somehow the opposite of of living mm-hmm. of, of of mankind. Because he doesn't see if he can live underwater, he doesn't need to breathe. And that, of course, is the key distinction made in the in the story of the fall between the animal life and the rest. Because mm-hmm. um, Eve's name uh, comes from the Hebrew Hayah meaning to breathe. Uh, those who breathe are animal. Those who do not breathe are vegetable. They don't know about oxygen transport through stomata. Um, so I can't help but wonder if there's something here about the vegetable world perversely being inimical to, uh, to the animal world here. Human beings shouldn't be be a thousand miles from land mm-hmm. they shouldn't have to depend upon fish falling onto them from the sky mm-hmm. you know this is uh, this is almost biblical and uh, the fact that Francis de la Vega is an historical figure doesn't stop me from thinking about Saint Francis who uh, mm-hmm. preaches to the birds and he's, ma- he, he's mentioned in that that miscellany too right it's the church they take him to to have him in the miscellany yeah yeah Exactly. So I can't help but think that maybe Frank Belknap Long Jr. <laughs> wants us to see something more going on here than than I was finding really justified. But who knows? I mean, the 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 bilge, which is what I think one normally calls the the well, is what they call it in this story for some reason. They call it the wells. They call it the well. Mm-hmm. The water is rising in the well, so they have to pump it to keep the water from flooding the the uh the ship and the kid who dies um tommy. it's tommy wells mm-hmm. uh, oh connections there, uh, there there's is, some stuff going after? on it's interesting it, it it is a bit long for for what it does and it and and i think that transition 
between you know their stock they're unable to move everybody's dying of this disease um they seem to have water but they don't have any food because they've been becalmed too long i guess um and then the the well stops the uh, rising right oh that's good because we're dying and then some guy shows up in a longboat with supplies and a very dubious story that nobody should believe, right? <laughs> right. And they, they're very ha- excited to have him. He tells great stories. Um, everything's going great. He's got food. The cook is cooking away. And then he turns on them somehow. Um, but notice it's the captain who's the last one to sort of clue into it, even though he's got as much evidence as everybody else. They just... He he just can't say it. So that that slow transformation of the captain from this being a, a good guy, a friend, even though his story is so dubious and the whole situation's untrustworthy, and he, he the guy doesn't even look right <laughs> in no. the first place. It, it, it to me it's like it's, it's uh, like he is a sea vampire of some kind. And what what's so cool is. He doesn't, you know, he isn't a land vampire. He's a sea vampire in that he's a lamprey. Somehow he's a lamprey. And that is a creepy creature. (laughs) And they talk about how the marks made on the human body by, uh, or uh, fish bodies by lampreys are freaky and where they live at the bottom of the sea. And of course, now they're up here on the ship um, and it's doing it to the crew. it is a, uh, as real as a vampire as you can get from the sea, certainly. And it's like, wow, that's creepy. And so it's all about the creepiness. And so there is something supernatural about the, the ship being becalmed um, and then the ship being freed when the, the creature is dead. But I agree, it's not, the, it's not the greatest story. And it's probably because it lacks a kind of explication for all of that. But maybe... If we went any deeper on that, we would just say, oh, yeah, it's, it kind of doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, one of the reasons that you enjoy the story is that you can see it functioning within a larger genre. Yes, exactly. That is a very significant reason for people to enjoy any work. You know, it's not just that we say, ah, this painting is beautiful. We compare it to other paintings that we have seen, even if we do it unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, now... I immediately, when I read this the first time, and again, when I've read it a couple of times, including most recently this morning, um, when I see De La Veggie uh, come up to the boat, the scene that I'm reminded of is in Frankenstein, ah. which you'll recall is basically a story, also epistolary, yep. told by the captain about this guy they bring up, you know, they're becalmed, not in the tropics, but in the ice. And this guy comes along, and they pull him on board, and they nurse him back to health, and then he tells his story, and off he goes. This is, in many ways, a direct reversal. Here, instead of the guy who comes aboard um, being saved by the captain, well, I guess he is saved, isn't it, in that the crew provides him with blood, but ultimately he's killed by the captain. Instead of being becalmed in the ice, they are becalmed in the tropics instead, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, and 
we've got a monster story, man, it's epistolary. But the thing is, the rationale for the the framing in Frankenstein has to do with putting things at a distance, has to do with whether or not knowledge really can be trusted. Here we have a simple thing with that miscellany conveniently, as you point out, turning up. Well, why should it be trusted? Um, if you take a look at the map, or if you happen to be familiar with Spain, as as I am, having lived there, you know, Bilbao, as I said, is on the northern coast, and Cadiz is on the southwestern coast. You would have to swim hundreds, I don't know, thousand miles to get from one to the other. So five years and a thousand miles later, this is some sea vampire that <laughs> Frank turned into. How did he do that? And by the way, since his name is Francis de la Vega, mm-hmm. or Francis de la Vega, if you're going to give it a Castilian pronunciation, I can't help but notice that the vampire has the same first name as the author. <laughs> um, well, so maybe he cued exactly, to that too as well. Yeah. What I'm sure he would have been would have been aware of it. We may not have been. Would be. No one named Francis can't know that Frank is the nickname. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't help but wonder what exactly what exactly was Frank Belknap Long trying to get to. So here I come in with a, a little bit of biography. 1925. He was born in 1901. He's 24 years old. This is an era when it was not at all uncommon for a man to get married between, say, 22 and 30. In fact, he got married in, if I recall correctly, 1960. And he and his wife remained childless until his death in 1994. So this is a guy, I have no idea what he thought about the opposite sex, but I do notice that the illustration that you've provided (laughs) us, Jesse, has this long snake-like thing, and the face, I don't know, does not look like a male face to me. Uh, I don't know what the artist of the illustration was, was thinking of. I don't know what Long was thinking of, but... There is creepiness here. I'm just not exactly sure where it is and what it means to us. That uh, artist, I think his name is Bronsnatch, or something close to that. Um, that that would have been chosen by the editor. It's actually there, he had a probably a half dozen or so uh, end end piece arts for it. The art that's commissioned at the beginning is specifically made for this story. Um, obviously he, p- he picked that one because it's a good one for the end of this story, given what happens in it. But, um, and there are no women in this story either. Right. Um, but at the All beginning, right. I note that the, there's actually a sailor throwing a dead body, we presume off of the longboat. And in the distance, there's a sailing vessel. So, yep. um, it's sort of telling us what to think about that story that he was telling. Um, the one that I thought of was not Frankenstein, um, but H.G. Uh, Wells' um, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And I remember years and years ago, you were telling me about that book and how to think about it. And you, I think, pointed out something I've remembered ever since, which is 
our narrator starts off the story telling how all the other survivors of the shipwreck that he had in, I think it was two ships crashing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean at night, and he, he was one of the survivors on the longboat, and they were running out of water and food, and it just so happened that everybody else died, um, and when he threw their dead bodies overboard, overboard, they sunk like a stone. And that made me say, oh, I see what you're saying. Um, this is an untrustworthy narrative, <laughs> right? When he shows up on this right. island, he's got a backstory to explain why he's the only one alive and everybody else is dead and none of their bodies are present. How long was he on that boat? Probably long enough to eat everybody else. Probably long enough to kill mm-hmm. everybody else so that he would be the one to have the food and water. One of the nice things about the shimmering resonances between inner and outer stories, between what we can know and and how we know it with an untrustworthy narrator, is that every time you touch one part, the other part begins to resonate. Mm-hmm. And that means that even in a story that may not strike us as a full, unitary, outstanding work of art, if we're willing to give it our time, as you and I are, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.